You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Good morning, you guys. Happy Super Sunday. Not related to anything happening after church. Happy Super Sunday. I want to start our time with a little quote from a guy named David Foster Wallace. Wallace is a highly acclaimed novelist and philosopher and thinker, and in a commencement address he gave back in 2005, he said this to a group of college students. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Everybody worships. And we live in a Western world right now that is rapidly fleeing traditional expressions of religion, especially Christianity. But it doesn't mean people are any less religious. They've just chosen to start worship, worshiping other things. And we're actually theologians decades ago who talked about this. A guy named Leslie Newbigin mentioned that the new religion is going to be something like politics. Does that sound familiar to us today? Right? It's exactly what social psychologists like Jonathan Haidt are showing us, that politics have become a new religion, that there's uh, liturgies of politics, that there's creeds and statements of faith that indicate who's in and who's out. Just a couple years ago, thousands of people gathered a political conference at a political conference here in the States, and on the stage of the conference, there was a gold statue of their desired political candidate. Does that sound like a story in the Bible, maybe? Golden calf, maybe? It's a religious symbol. And it's political, but it's certainly religious. Everybody worships. And I was reading another article recently. It was written in 2019, but I read it this last week in The Atlantic. And it talked about another form of worship that exists in our culture. It's the worship of work. And the author of the article, his name's Derek Thompson, he said that a new secular religion is arising in our culture called workism. And he writes this about workism. He said, workism is among the most potent of the new religions competing for congregants. It's the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose. We've become people who worship our work. And many of you in this room, especially the 20-somethings and 30-somethings, know very clearly this experience. You know that your identity is often closely tied to what you do for work, and your value is tied to what you do for work. We see it in our language we use. Think about it. When someone asks you, hey, tell me about yourself, usually you say your name and then what? What you do for work. Immediately connected to your identity is what you do for work. Or flip that around, right? If you want to learn something about someone, what question do we usually ask? What do you do? Right? Because that's an identity marker in our culture. And our bosses and employers aren't helping us on this. You guys, I'm sure, have seen the trend of the cool office that's been making the rounds. These huge tech companies are putting uh, huge high-class restaurants or coffee shops or gyms or daycares or pet-friendly spaces, nap pods, literal beds in offices. And at first we're like, well, that's really cool. But think about it. What is that conditioning us to do, to be? It's saying that every part of our life revolves around our work, that every part of our identity or our value is soaked up in our work. It's defining us. There's a South Korean philosopher named Young Chol Han who writes about this in his book, the burnout society. He calls this a shift to an achievement culture, which is very much embedded in our American society. 
An achievement culture is where people are valued for what they achieve or produce, not who they are as a whole person. And he goes on to say that the results of an achievement culture are always devastating. He mentions things like chronic burnout, anxiety, depression. And that's exactly what we're seeing in our achievement society, in our achievement culture. As of 2019, the World Health Organization officially defined burnout as a disease. Another global study done by Gallup said that more than 85% of people are unhappy in their jobs. 85%. We are burnt out. We are anxious. Because when work becomes our identity, it destroys us. It dehumanizes us. It reduces us from being humans, fully formed image of God humans, and turns us into production machines. Our worth is based upon the success or social status or results of what we do. Workism isn't working. It's, just, it's a destructive religion. And as Derek Thompson put it in this same article, this is not a guy who's religious. He said, our desks were never meant to be our altars. But there's also another truth embedded into this. Around 80% of our waking lives are doing some sort of work. It's not something that we can really escape. And don't just think paid work. Think unpaid work, too. Volunteerism, parents in the room, you guys do hard work, harder than anything I do on a daily basis. I know that. Work is how we fill most of our waking lives, and so we're left with a hard question. In a culture where workism has become destructive, how do we find a transformative picture of work? How do we learn to work well with that 80%? We're continuing in our teaching series here at Midtown called The Transformed Life. And over the last few weeks, we've been examining a few of the central pillars of what it means to follow Jesus and how each of those pillars transform us and the world around us. In the last few weeks, we've been talking about the foundation of this transformation. We've been saying that it starts with receiving the love and grace of Jesus and then being shaped by Jesus, becoming like him in things like scripture and prayer and disciplines. And then embedding yourself in a community, belonging to a community, a church. It's diverse and inclusive and that grieves and celebrates and mourns and continues to be shaped by Jesus alongside one another. And those are the foundation. Those are crucial, crucial things. All of those uh, prototypically churchy things that we do. But we also want to remember that a good chunk of our time is not spent doing those explicitly churchy things. See, many of us who've been raised in the church have been taught that spiritual maturity or nearness to God comes the more time we spend in and around church. So we do more churchy things, right? We try to fill it with volunteering, we try to fill it with small groups, we try to fill it with Sunday mornings around the periphery of our lives. And either implicitly or explicitly, we develop this kind of spiritual secular divide. We think that our work is over here and is a big chunk of our lives, and then our devotional life or our prayer practice or our going to church is kind of tucked away in a corner. It's compartmentalized. But that's not at all what it means to be a Christian. Not at all what it means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus is a holistic endeavor. Every part of our life, our sleeping and our waking, our resting and our working, it's spiritual. It's all spiritual. And so our job as humans is to navigate what does it mean to follow Jesus in every part of my life, in my breathing, in my walking, in my going about my day-to-day. 80% of our hours are spent outside churchy things. We better do a good job learning what it means to follow Jesus in that space. And as it turns out, Christianity has a profound and robust theology of work. Way, way more robust than the workism that exists around us. Work for the Christian is partnership with God and bringing flourishing to the world. And the Bible wastes no time expressing this. 
don't know if you guys knew this, but actually on page one of the Bible, we get a robust theology of work. So if you have a Bible, turn in it with me to Genesis chapter one, the very first page we learn about this picture of work. We're going to start in Genesis chapter one, verse 26. We're going to read through 28, and then we're going to skip forward to chapter two. Uh, So I'll tell you when we skip there. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, by the way, the words are going to be behind me on the screen, so you can follow along there. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Now skipping forward to chapter 2, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flows out of Eden to water the garden and from there it divides and becomes four branches. The name of the first is Pishon. It's the one that flows around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is the Gihon. Is the one that flows around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and to keep it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Guys, the Bible gets to talking about work before much anything else. At the very beginning, what's God doing? Working. He's creating things. And then, immediately after, he creates some humans. And what's the first thing he tells them to do? Work. The Bible sees work as a good thing. It is crucially important in our humanity. But, when we dig into this picture, we find that it's not intrinsically our identity. We have a different identity that helps us refute workism. We are made to work, certainly, but it's not who we are. Notice, right away, God's creation of humanity makes the claim that they're made in the image of God. That's their identity. Verse 26, a scholar John Walton does terrific work on this phrase, what it would have meant to the original Genesis audience. He says, the language of the image of God, this was used in all other ancient Near Eastern cultures. It was used to describe kings and queens and rulers. And it meant two things, mainly. First, the image of God is designed to work out the purposes of God. That's what it meant to be an image bearer of something. And so humans are seen as partners with God, as ambassadors of God to the world, to bring about his good and fruitful purposes. And this kingly language continues. The words dominion or rule, those are about kings, ambassadors, vice regents with God. So that's what it means to be an image of God, but it doesn't just mean that. It also means that humans have the capacity to become like God, like the original. An image bearer has the capacity to become in their characteristics and attributes like the one they're made in the image of. And so humans are made to grow into the character and attributes of God, peace and love and justice and the rest. And here's what makes the Bible's usage of that term so crucial. In other ancient Near Eastern cultures, not everyone was made in the image of God. 
It was only the rulers or the kings. It was only the upper crust of society. And they actually didn't work. They believed that work was bad, that they're made in the image of God and they don't have to work. And so they oppressed other people and made them work. And those people were not made in the image of God. You only worked if you weren't made in the image of God. Work was a way of continuing oppression, destruction, dehumanization in the world. It was a source of burnout back then, too. And the Bible is saying no to that picture. The Bible is subverting it. It's claiming that every human, not just the kings and rulers, not just the elite in a culture, every human, regardless of gender or skin color or social location or the work they perform, every human is made in the image of God. That's a profound claim about human nature. It's unlike any other culture or society that existed then, and it's the foundation for what we hold as universal human rights in our world today. It started here. Humans are created by God with inherent dignity. And humans are partners with God to bring life and flourishing into the world. And humans are lived embodiments of God's character, his love, his justice, his peace, his grace. That's who every person in this room is and every person outside this room. And it's important to see that that identity starts before any work is done. You are made in the image of God before you ever do anything. You are holy, you are sacred, you are a bearer of the divine. And that is a needed antidote to the poison of workism. Because workism will locate our identity in what we do, what we produce. We see people as successful or good or worthwhile because of what they produce, and they're a failure if, or not good or not worthwhile if they don't produce. Scripture goes the opposite way. You are good and worthwhile because you're made in the image of God, full stop. No other caveats. There's no work you do that validates your existence. You don't prove your identity through your work. You are God's beloved. And any work you do comes from that identity. Scripturally, work does not form our value and identity. It extends from our value and identity. As Pastor John Mark Comer puts it, culture says I am what I do. Scripture says I do what I am. Culture says I am what I do. Scripture says I do what I am. So that's the foundation. Identity comes before any work we do. Your work is not your identity or your value, nor does it determine those things. Then, once that identity is established, God continues on to describe what work looks like for these new humans. If you skip forward to Genesis 2, you see this picture. And you may have noticed when I was reading, there seems to be kind of a random paragraph describing rivers and onyx stone and bdellium and gold. It says that there's a type of gold that's good and a type of gold that's not good, which I don't understand. I'll take the not good gold, like whatever. What's going on here? Why is that list? He's seemingly listing off raw materials in the world randomly. What does onyx stone have to do with my spirituality? Well, notice immediately after that list of seemingly random resources, we learn what humans are made to do. They're meant to take that list of resources and do things with it. That's what work is, taking the raw material of the world and doing things. And there's two words that describe what humans are to do. The first word here is till those resources. It's not a word that we use because we're not a very agrarian or agricultural uh, society. Some of your translations might actually say work, but that's a way that this word can be translated literally. Work can also be translated cultivate or develop or draw out its potential. That's what work is. Work is the action of image of God humans to cultivate, develop, and rearrange the raw materials of the particular domain that they're in to produce goodness, beauty, and flourishing for all. That was a lot. I'll say it again. Work 
is the action of image of God humans to cultivate, develop, and rearrange the raw materials of a particular domain to produce goodness, beauty, and flourishing for all. You see what that means about all of our work? Everything we do is an opportunity to actively partner with God to bring flourishing. Every little action. Suddenly, all those spreadsheets. Suddenly, all those early morning wake-up calls. Suddenly, all those designs, all those lessons, all those cases, all those patients. All of it is dignified. All of it is valued. All of it is an opportunity to partner with God in bringing about a holy and good world. All work is dignified in the Christian view. And it, again, destroys the assumption of workism, which says that there's certain work that's better than other work. We know this in our culture, right? Somebody says they're a doctor or a lawyer, we think, wow, that work's really important. Someone says they're a plumber, not so much, right? Someone says they're a janitor, not so much. (laughs) We got a janitor in the back. Shout out. This biblical picture upends our world's hierarchy of work. It dignifies every bit of work. It says that every little thing you do and every big thing you do is partnership with God. Every little moment. It's all equally valuable and equally necessary. So, for instance, the chef at Otro Cafe. If you haven't been to Otro Cafe, get to Otro Cafe. The chef at Otro Cafe takes together the raw materials. They're not onyx, but they're great materials. And he makes some of the best tacos in Phoenix, Arizona. That's holy work, amen? Holy work. The farm girl who milks the cows so that the milk can get to the store and get to you and I. That is holy work. The entrepreneur who takes a new idea and builds on it to bless their neighbors. Holy work. And the parent who devotes their time, their energy, their life to pouring into a child so that they might look and sound and act more like Jesus. That is holy work. All work that takes the raw materials of the world and rearranges them to bring about flourishing and goodness, that is equally valuable. It's holy in God's eyes. That's what it means to till this resource, this earth. But he keeps going. We don't just till it, we also keep it. You may have seen that as well. This word can be translated to take care of or to guard or to protect or to steward. So it's not only that a human being works to rearrange the raw materials, they also do it in a way that doesn't overexpend those materials or abuse those materials or neglect them. Our image-bearing work means representing the one whose image we bear. God cares for and loves the earth. We are to care for and love the earth. We are to avoid abuse. We are to avoid overextending our employees. We are to avoid uh, neglecting the people that we work with. And maybe more than ever in our time, we're intimately aware of our need to steward and protect the literal earth. We know right now that that is a dire need in our culture. All of creation is a gift from God. It's not ours, and it's actually not our kids or our grandkids either. It's the Lord's. And so our job is to steward it and protect it in all our work that we do. You guys getting a glimpse of how deep and how broad and how wide this biblical picture of work is? It extends from our established identity as image of God people. It's not a way we earn our identity. It's the act of cultivating and using raw materials in our particular domain to bring life and flourishing to all things and all people. It's the act of stewarding those materials, caring for them with integrity and with love. That's the Bible's transformed picture 
of work. And while that picture's helpful, it doesn't really get very specific for us. We can know that generally that's what work looks like, but we start to ask the question, okay, so what's my job? What sort of work do I need to do? Because this picture in Genesis, like they're kind of farmers and they're naked and they're tilling the ground, and I don't know that that's my calling. It might be, by the way. That's okay, we can talk about it. But for most of us in this room, that's not going to be our calling. So what does it look like to do this sort of work in the world? What is the type of work that I'm made to do? And that's a question that Christians for millennia have asked. And they've actually developed a practice and a few helpful tools to respond to that question. This practice is called the practice of vocation. And that's a word that gets thrown around a lot in our culture. You've probably heard it at some point. And oftentimes it's co-opted by workism. Often we think that our vocation becomes our identity. And if we don't have a vocation, then we're somehow less than or other than. But that's actually not what vocation is. Vocation is much more freeing, much deeper than that. So for the rest of our time, I want to define what vocation is and what it isn't. And then I want to go through some tools for each of us in our own lives. Tools that we can apply to start to go on this journey of vocation with God. With me? Down? All right. First, what vocation is and isn't. It is first discovered, not self-determined. It is discovered, not self-determined. We live in a world that's constantly telling us to pave our own path, to chart our own way, and to decide for ourselves who we are and what we're to become. And that means that our own fulfillment or desire or happiness is the driving force behind everything we do. And our vocation can get wrapped up into that reality. We start to seek a vocation because of what it can do for us. The social status it provides, or the comfort it provides, or the wealth it provides. But the picture of vocation for the Christian is deeper. It's actually not rooted in a self-determined drive for ourselves. And you can actually see it in the word. The Latin root for vocation is vocare. literally means to call. The implication is that our vocation is a calling. It's rooted in the way that we've been uniquely wired by God to serve and bring flourishing to our neighbors. And it's connected to the unique context that we live in. And this is embedded all over Scripture. What you find is that God has woven each and one of us uniquely and intimately. Psalm 139 says, God created your inmost being. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You've been put on this earth with a destiny, with a real purpose and significance. You're a small batch. You're handcrafted, right? All of those hipster languages <laughs> we use to describe creation. So understanding our vocation doesn't come from willfulness and self-determination. Understanding our vocation comes from listening well to God and who he shaped us to be, who he's formed us to be. Every person in this room has been given unique gifts and has been placed in unique circumstances. So finding your vocation is a journey of discovery, discovering what those gifts are and discovering how those gifts can get embodied and lived in your life how you can start to participate in God's big cosmic plan of redemption and restoration. And here's what's remarkable about that truth. If every person in here is made uniquely, that means that each of you has, has the unique ability to reach new people with the gospel. You have the unique ability to love people well with your gifts and your context, people that I can't and people that no one else in this room can. You have a distinct significance in God's big plan. So that's the first thing. Vocation is discovered. It's not self-determined. Second thing about vocation. It's an ongoing journey, not a soulmate. It's an ongoing journey, not a soulmate. You certainly have a unique calling in your life, but it's also important not to get wrapped up in a soulmate picture of vocation. 
See, sometimes we can act like there's just one thing out there that will complete me. There's just one job, and once I get to that job, then I will be fully satisfied and fulfilled. I will be a complete person. Garbage. There is not a job and not work that you can do that can completely fulfill you. You are only a complete person because of your identity in the Lord. You're only a complete person when you are near to God and that identity. That is what makes you a complete and whole and full person. And work extends from that identity. Work does not make that identity. It's not a soulmate. And I can say that for you out of experience. A few years ago, I was working a job that I didn't love. And I felt like wasn't really capitalizing on my gifts. And I was sour about it. I was really mad about it. And I kept thinking each day, I just need to get out of this place, out of this place. And as I reflect, I really wasted a lot of great opportunities to use my gifts where I was. I really wasted a lot of great opportunities to love my neighbor well because I was so mad about not having my soulmate yet. And so I went through this journey of vocation. And what I accidentally did was equate vocation to my identity, my value. I went through seminary, I went through grad school, and then I said, ministry, that's it. This glorious thing, right? And so I keep stepping towards ministry. Eventually a door opens up and I'm like, yes, I found it, my soulmate. I'm a complete person. And then the second day of ministry came. (laughs) And then the third day, and then the fourth day, and then the fifth day. My value wasn't in my work. That wasn't the point. I love my work. I am definitely called to do this. I love doing this. I love walking with each of you. I love discipling you. I love teaching. Those are some of my favorite things to do. I'm definitely called to those things. I feel God calling me there. But it's not who I am. It doesn't complete me. And we need to remember that, friends. We are broken people living in a broken world. Your job cannot fully satisfy you. And as soon as you think it will, it will let you down. Or you'll get the thing that you wanted and you'll realize, oh, it's not what I thought. And I think one more point to remember on this. If we think that our vocation is somehow our soulmate, that's actually a privileged picture of vocation. And here's what I mean. There are situations often outside of our control that determine our ability to follow certain paths. For some people in this room, you were able to go to college, you were able to get a degree, and you were able to submit applications to a variety of places. You had a lot more freedom. For others in this room, not so much. Certain circumstances determined your ability to move and live throughout the world. In fact, most Christians today and throughout history haven't had as much freedom as we have to choose a vocation. They've had to just understand who they are and where they are and then live well in those places. Maybe for you, a family member got sick or needy and that changed your vocational path. Maybe for you, an unexpected child was born. Maybe something completely hypothetically crazy like a global pandemic just moved you off course. That never really happened, but you know what I mean. All those things happen. And it's important in the midst of that reality to remember that God is still calling you. Even if it's not an ideal circumstance, even if it's not the soulmate job, God has wired each of us uniquely, even when that work isn't ideal. And he's placed us uniquely in places that are sometimes hard and challenging. And we can still live out our vocation in those places. So, Rather than asking ourselves the question, what's the work or job that will complete me, we need to start asking different questions. There's one question in particular that's been helpful for me in my vocational journey. It was one I asked throughout grad school often and was asked by classmates and professors. It goes like this. At this point in your Christian journey, or in your journey, how do you envision your call to God's mission in the world? And there's three parts of this statement that are really important. First, at this point, 
That's a reminder that calling and vocation is always a journey. You're always updating it. You're always reviewing it. You're always thinking about where is God calling me here and now in this new season? Uh, when I was working that job that I didn't love so much, I got a call from somebody I know in my family who had been, I thought, doing his vocational soulmate work for decades. They were a missionary, they had worked in different Christian schools, and then this person called me and they said, hey, do you know anybody at GCU to do the job that you're currently doing? I'm thinking about taking that job. And I was like, hold on, you are 30 years ahead of me in your vocational journey. You already have your, so why do you need this? And what I realized is that vocation is something that he was updating and reviewing again and again. And it, as it turns out, this might have been a good gig for him in that season. It might have been a good usage of his gifts, even if it wasn't mine. He had been doing other work for decades, but he said, in this season, this might make the best sense for me at this point. It's an important vocational question. Second, how do you envision your work? It's telling us that we do get to participate with God. We have some freedom and autonomy, but our vision also fits under a bigger thing, which is God's mission in the world. Our vocations are always oriented towards Jesus's redeeming and restoring work around us. Whatever our autonomy is, it fits under God's mission. So that's the second thing about vocation here. It's an ongoing journey. It's not a soulmate. Third thing, our vocations are commitments to excellence in love. They're not just ways to get by. Commitments to excellence in love, not just ways to get by. A vocation is something that we are committed to doing with utter excellence, with all of our strength and ingenuity and creativity and effort. It's not just something we do to pay the bills. It's not just something we do to get by. It's not just something we do to get comfortable in our lives. We intentionally make our work excellent because we're partnering with God in it. There's a theologian named Martin Luther who captured this well in his writing and work. Luther, when he'd read the scriptures, he'd notice the multitude of times where it says that God is loving or caring for creation. He'd see it all over the Psalms. He heard verses like, God strengthens the bars of your gates. That is, he secures and makes safe the place where you live. But once he heard those verses, Luther started to dig deeper. He said, well, how does God do that? How does God love you? How does God care for you? How does God strengthen the bars of your gates? Well, he does it through people's work. He feeds people and animals through farmers that do excellent work. He cares for and protects through parents and lawyers who do excellent work. He loves people through therapists and teachers who do excellent work. And if that's true, Luther said, then that means our vocations are to be practiced always with excellence because we are partnering with God in them. He said that the Christian shoemaker doesn't just put crosses on their shoes, they make good shoes. In Colossians 3, Paul expresses the same thing. He says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever task you must do, work as if your soul depends on it. As for the Lord and not for humans, God is your boss. Since you know that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you serve the Lord Christ. Jesus is a way better boss than any worldly boss. He's inviting us into participating and flourishing. And so being a Christian teacher doesn't just mean feeding kids fruit snacks and watching the clock till summer. It means teaching well. It means reminding children, either implicitly or explicitly, that they are beloved by God and that they have a destiny in the world. Being a Christian contractor doesn't just mean cutting corners to turn a profit. It means using safe and good material, using right labor practices, paying employees fairly and not overworking them. As Tim Keller put it, being a Christian pilot means landing the plane. 
Just land the plane, and hopefully smoothly, but land the plane. Do it with excellence. The Christian picture of work and vocation is that every action in our lives, even the seemingly mundane and small things, have the power to weave together goodness and flourishing. And when we all do that in our own domains, it starts to happen. We read about this last week. When Christians started to do this well, it changed the world around them. And so we pursue everything we do with excellence, working for and with God, and for the sake of the world around us. Now, that's great and helpful as a defining picture of vocation, but we also want to make sure that you have tangible tools on how to explore this in your own journey. And so in the Transform Life curriculum, we've actually outlined some of these tools. We've got tools like the Spiritual Gifts Test or APEST test. APEST sounds a little more intimidating than it is. That's just an acronym. Basically, it's describing what your role is in the church and how you move and act in this body of believers for the sake of the world. You're going to take those in a group. Uh, if you don't, by the way, have that, let me know. I'll email it to you. We want you to get plugged into a group so you can talk about this with other folks. We also have a strengths finder, that, uh, a, a assessment or exam that you'll get to take. This is a database tool that's designed to provide specific descriptions of your skills. And you are unique in that way. It's you and one in every few million people have the same strengths. So the idea here is that you get a comprehensive picture of who you are. And then we also have a tool that I'm really excited to share with you guys that's this one here. This is a, basically a diagram of how we discern and understand our vocation and our work in the world. And so it's basically four intersecting categories. It's doing what you love, what God has gifted you in, what can cover your needs or pay the bills, and what the world needs. What you love, what God has gifted you in, what can cover your needs, and what the world needs. And our hope is that you can go through each of those categories, identify different things, and you'll actually find that vocation could be a lot of stuff. You could actually use your skills and gifts in a ton of unique ways, even if the circumstances aren't ideal, even if life has thrown a curveball your way. So after service, we're going to send out the links for these tools. If you don't already have them, you should have them in Transform Life and in your community groups. And then from there, we as a community of Jesus followers are going to creatively explore what this looks like for each of us. We're going to see what it looks like to use our gifts in our context here in Midtown Phoenix for the good of the city, for the good of our neighbors. We're doing this alongside other organizations in our neighborhood. We're doing a practice called asset mapping, where we evaluate what their strengths are, what their skills are, and how our strengths and skills can come alongside them to bring love and grace to our neighborhood. It's going to be really, really sweet. I'm excited for it. Because our vision at Midtown is that we become transformed people who transform the city around us. And we believe that life and flourishing will come when we do that. So, to wrap this big picture of vocation. At Midtown, this week, friends, let's remember the words of the Lebanese poet Khalil Gibran. He said that work is love made visible. In the end, that's what all of this is about. We don't work to earn love through accomplishment. We work to express the love that has changed our lives and to invite other people into that love. We cultivate and steward the raw materials around us, and we're guided by the Spirit of God as we do that. The Spirit of God is working in and through us all the time to bring flourishing to our neighbors. That's what work is about. That's our human vocation. Might we embrace that this week, becoming transformed people who transform the world. Let's pray.